You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentary's Global Rankings. Hi, welcome to Nick Luck Daily. It is Thursday the 1st of September. Uh, we start with a follow-up to yesterday. Tom Stanley and Finnick, by the way, you may, may have guessed that. Um, yesterday's podcast was titled The Curious Case of 101020, and Nick actually posed on uh, Twitter a question. He said, what would you do if you found out a horse you bought had previously failed a dope test and we got the answer the answer was line him up for a touch at Worcester DJ Jeffries joins me now on the line just as a a quick follow-up hey well done first of all horse won very nicely yeah it was great um I was delighted for the owners um to be very patient and um no it was uh, it was great the horse did it nicely and Tom Bellamy gave him a great ride um I take it it's sort of half, or the fact that the news broke yesterday and the horse ran yesterday, it all, it all came at once, probably caught you on the hop rather, because as you suggested, you, you know, you, you're you willing to ignore the fact that there was a failed dope test, you're going to crack on, he's got a win under his belt, and ultimately you, you've probably got quite a nice horse on your hands. Yeah, he, he definitely has a bit of ability, he's a very straightforward horse to train, it's a pleasure to have around the place, um, and he's gone and done it nicely yesterday, we worked very hard on his jumping. And you can see that yesterday. He was still green, um, you know, to the jumping game. But uh, no, he's going to be a, a bit of fun now for his owners. Um, he he obviously gets to race in a, a handicap this weekend if you choose to do so. Off ninety, is that an appealing option? Yeah, so I've already declared him. Um, Tom Bellamy can ride him. He gave me a docket saddle doing twelve stern the other day, so. <laughs> I don't know how he's going to get on for twelve six on Saturday, but we'll find out. I'm sure he'll manage. Um, and then what, what's the what's the plan? Because obviously the, the horse has got form with a bit of cut underfoot from Ireland. He's won on good yesterday. Do you, do you sort of make hay in the in the early months of the season, or or are there bigger plans afoot potentially, or just see how you go? I think we'll we'll just keep tipping away for now. I personally think he'll run a little bit farther in time. Um, I've already indicated to the boys. You know, say if he runs this weekend and he, he wins again, it'd be great. Um, then there's actually a race at uh, Ascot, um, uh, the first meeting at Ascot, the first chance meeting is October 31st or something. So I give him a little break, bring him back to that, and there's a race over 2 2 or 2 3 there, boys race. We could just target that. DJ, appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks, million. Yeah, good luck to DJ and the team this weekend with 10 10 20. Lee Mottishead joins me then. Eventful podcast yesterday, wasn't it? Made all the more eventful by the by the horse winning but but on a on a um on a more serious note look it's a, it's a serious topic and um there was a an article in the Irish Times Lee with um an update from the IHRB that they do plan to speed up this process and i think this case highlights why that's important they do and you're right because this 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 was an exceptionally long delay we're looking at over a year uh, in between the horse uh, winning this race with the prohibited substance in his system to the point of disqualification being announced. The IRB, IHRB have uh, been quoted in the Irish Times on that one. They speak of a backlog in processing cases from 2021 that they say has now ended. The spokesman for 
Irish Racing's regulator says the backlog has now been cleared. All 2021 cases have been processed. Um, goes on to say that uh, every case has to be taken on its merits. Everything is on a case-by-case basis. But asked about future delays of this sort, uh, these folks said that would be unlikely. There was a delay in all our cases from last year, and we've been endeavouring to have them heard in a swifter time frame. Each case is different in terms of investigation and what is required to bring it to a referrals hearing. So the basic thrust of that is that the IHRB is acknowledging that a delay uh, in this of this sort of order is not uh, really acceptable, but there are maybe uh, circumstances which might make it happen, but they, that it's not right and that it shouldn't be happening to that extent in the future. And while we are ticking the update box with regard to to yesterday uh, nick and lydia touched on the the state of rest news which we knew that the, the horse has been retired off the back of um not passing his mri scan um conducted by racing victoria to, to head out and defend his cox plate crown so important issues raised i think by the the team on the podcast yesterday with regard to that going forward but racing victoria have now issued a, a follow-up statement lee what does it entail they have, and as you say, it's a really interesting discussion between Nick and Lydia yesterday regarding the question surrounding state of rest, uh, failing that um, RV veterinary inspection. Um, Racing Victoria have said a bit more today regarding horses who have passed veterinary inspection and will be uh, heading out in the first shipment, or two shipments to go out to the Werribee uh, Quarantine Centre uh, just outside Melbourne City, and they have named four horses. El Bodegon, who we have known, trained by James Ferguson, but he's now joining Chris Waller en route probably to the Cox Plate. He has passed the test. My Oberon, who is going from the William Haggis Yard to Annabelle Nisham Stable and is also bound for the Cox Plate, he's passed the test. The uh, formerly French-trained Knight Endeavour, who goes to Kieran Mart and David Eustace has passed the test, as has the David Simcock trained Rodrigo Diaz. Now, there's further information within the racing uh, Victoria statement. They say that three the initial, initial uh, sorry, an additional three horses are provisionally approved to go in the second shipment: Kamora, Loft, and Without a Flight, who so Without a Fight, who represents. The Crisfords. They further state that there will be other horses who haven't been named, who are entered in the Spring Carnival's principal races, who have yet to go through their vetting process, and they speak about having a deadline for that to happen. So there are names that we haven't mentioned that could yet be going to Melbourne. But they additionally state, finally, RV Racing Victoria can confirm that the following horses will not be competing in the 2022 Victorian Spring Carnival. One of them they name as State of Rest, which we already knew he'd failed the test. The Joseph O'Brien trained Cleveland, the Andreas Vola trained Northern Ruler, the Brian Ellison trained Tascan, and the John and Thady Gosden trained E-Ball winner Trawlerman. Now, there is then a clarification that says, noting that it is the prerogative of connection to communicate why their horse will not be contesting the Victorian Spring Racing Carnival. Racing Victoria notes for clarity 
that several of the aforementioned horses were not subjected to the pre-travel veterinary protocol. So it's always that question that Lydia was referencing yesterday about what are the potential implications for a horse who fails a Racing Victoria veterinary test in terms of how that horse is treated by connections and by indeed racing jurisdictions. The BHA has already said that it would do its own test, but even so, like there are question marks about how that horse might be perceived Racing Victoria is stressing that it is not to be assumed that all those horses failed veterinary testing and that some of them were not even subjected to it. Yeah, I think that's a a key point and we're going to move on from it, but particularly Trawlerman, um, it would be, I think, important to understand whether or not he was subjected to those sort of tests as a, an Ebor winner who is a gelding. Um, if he were to have you know, failed those tests, then that raises serious con- concerns about what he does in the future but there could be other reasons at play perhaps we'll we'll have a, a follow-up to that in the coming days or weeks on the on the nick luck daily podcast we do need to get stuck into the the meat of this podcast lee though which is the interference rules and this on the back of the ruling yesterday or the news that broke yesterday that ammo racing have um lost their appeal to overturn the result of the the norfolk stakes but what has come out of that is that the appeals panel has suggested that the interference rules should perhaps go further. What do we know? Yeah, so finally, we know that the Norfolk Stakes result is now inked into the book. The Riddler is the winner of the 2022 uh, Norfolk Stakes and the, the two ammo racing train horses, owned horses, Wallbank and Crispy Cat, who finished in second and third, will remain in second and third a six-hour um appeal board hearing has actually resulted in an outcome with a bit more speed than i think perhaps we were expecting but it is that the riddler keeps a race and the appeal is thrown out but as you say there are things that have come out of the the appeal uh, verdict one of them being that ammo that the the appeal board believe that there should be a broad review of interference rules the british racing interference rules and it says they will be desirable and could be very beneficial um the bha has immediately come back and poured to a degree tepid water on this and perhaps understandably so on the base that it had already announced very recently that it was uh, planning to review the penalties um, that jockeys face when transgressing rules including for interference it points out that there was a wider review of the sports rules three years ago at which participants and stakeholders in general expressed satisfaction with these particular rules it also stresses that in recent years other racing jurisdictions have fallen in line or have joined forces with Brittany like on 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 the rules for interference principally now america and canada are the only major racing nations that have a different set of rules for interference however i suppose what is key is how the interference rules are interpreted and the penalties that are handed out to jockeys who break the interference rules so i i think the the the, the penalties will be revised uh, not immediately. I think that process will take some time, but I think there is uh, intent from the BHA to have a proper look at that. And I think, from my understanding, 
the Professional Jockeys Association would be extremely supportive of that. Um, so there will be not, not a direct consequence of this particular case, um, but I think this is something that will will run and run. Do, do you think we should be tougher on interference, Lee? Yes, I do. I do. And I think, uh, I think in general, um, a consensus view has built up around that. Now, obviously, you have to uh, interpret each case on its merits. And there's no point um, uh, implementing a draconian approach if the individual case doesn't merit a draconian approach. But I, I do think we are increasingly seeing uh, examples of race riding on our race courses that are highly questionable and um, do endanger the horses and jockeys taking part on our race courses. I think that, that there are cases of jockeys doing things and getting away with things that they might not have done in the past. Um, and I think for um, the sport as a whole, a stricter interpretation of the rules um, would be beneficial. Um, I think there are sometimes things that we see and things that jockeys get away with that you do wonder whether that is uh, good for the sport. And I think, therefore, this revision of penalties uh, is a good thing. If I can make one other point as as well, Tom. Please um, do. I, I was reading the, the Appeal Board's uh, report this morning and it felt very in keeping with what i'd read of the the six hour hearing chris cook uh my, my, my colleague um our senior news reporter had um followed that case and he pointed out how it was quite a protracted hearing at which the the the, the appeal board were even questioning how one should pronounce uh key interruptions surname which seems strange given he wasn't actually in the room nor viewing the inquiry and when you read this report i thought parts of it just uh read in a way that didn't necessarily reflect that well on the appeal board in terms of making accessible for consumption i'll give you an, an example here in the instant case we cannot possibly hold that what happened by way of interference, either to Crispy Cat or to Brave Nation, amounted to interference, which was severe, in the sense of being a very great instance of the mischief under discussion, a slight little check or a check with loss of momentum for a couple of strides, with the allegedly threatened danger, brackets, paragraph 42 below brackets, a clipping of heels, question mark. These are much nearer to regular everyday examples of interference and severe. This proposition might be thought to apply a fortiori to a race for comparatively inexperienced horses, run over the minimum distance and therefore at maximum speed. I think some of the appeal board statement reads a little bit as though it could have come from a Sir Humphrey Appleby speech in a Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister episode. I didn't think it was necessarily uh, accessible and at some points it did sound a little bit self-important. So I, I would just wonder whether these things can be presented in a slightly different way.
Well, much of the talk in the UK is about the best racehorse in the world, Baid. But in the US, all eyes are on Flightline this weekend as he lines up in the Pacific Classic. And US racing expert Michelle Yu joins me to talk about just that. Michelle, welcome along. Um, he, he just wins, right? Simple as that. He does. He does, he does just win. But, I mean, I feel like there's a pretty big asterisk next to all of his just wins. He's only run four times, Tom. So it's not like he's doing this day in, day out, you know. So, okay. What, what, give, me, give me a feeling uh, about how good this horse is considered over in the U.S. So he's a four-year-old this year, and he's ranked at the top of our older horse division, our current race horse division period for the classic, where everybody gets to vote, or not everybody, but we have a big population of racing people that get to vote on like the top horses going towards the Breeders' Cup Classic, and Whiteline has been firmly installed at the very top of that list for as long as I can think right now. Um, and it's because he's been dazzling. He's been brilliant. He's gotten a lot of accolades like that, and he deserves most of them um, because the way he wins has been sensational. His four races, I think he's won by almost 50 lengths combined. So he's winning, and he's doing it the right way. Um, that being said, I mentioned he's lightly raced. He, he's only the four races to his credit. Two of them are grade ones, but one of them was restricted three-year-olds last year in the Malibu. And then, you know, he did win the Met Handicap for the Met Mile in good fashion. He won by about six lengths, and that's a really good race. He showed that he could ship out of town, um, and he showed that he could do a different racetrack than is on our, our, our circuit. And his trainer, Don Sadler, is not really known for shipping horses out of town. His record a couple of years back was like one for 90 shipping horses out of town, right? Like, he just, he likes to keep his horses at home. That being said, he only beat Happy Saver about six. Um, Happy Saver was close to life is good, so you get that formula. But behind him was all these sprinters because it was a one-turn mile. And the question is going to be, is Flightline going to go a full mile and a quarter today? And, and I can't say at one to five or one to nine or whatever he's going to be that, like, I could guarantee he's going to get this distance and win the race, right? Like... People are saying he's the best horse we've seen in, in 10 years, and 20 years. He's been visually impressive, but I don't know if I can say he's like the best horse of the last decade yet. Steve Asmussen said on this podcast on Monday with regard to his Travers win at Epicenter, I'd be confident at all distances against horses with Epicenter. Well, if... This horse, Flightline, goes and, and absolutely bolts on in a Pacific Classic over the mile and a quarter. Is that game over for a horse like Epicenter, or, or do you give him a shot against Flightline? You know, the problem with Epicenter is that he's three, right? So we haven't seen it. I mean, our older horse division out here is just sensational. Um, you know, we've got, obviously, Flightline. We've got Country Grammar, who we haven't even talked about yet. He won the Dubai World Cup. He's a true mile and a quarter horse. He lost the prep race for the Pacific Classic, but always knowing the Pacific Classic was going to be where he wanted to peak, right? Because that's the mile and a quarter for him. He's a mile and a quarter specialist. You've got Life is Good, who maybe still can get a mile and a quarter. We'll find out, but he's obviously one of the best on the East Coast. And we've got Olympia, if you draw a line through his last race, it's going to be right there. So there is a very, very big hurdle for Epicenter. Well, I think he is our predominant three-year-old and he has been consistent, and we've seen him mature, we've seen him get better. Um, 
definitely see his running style change as the years progress, and it's really worked in his favor because as he went from a front runner to being a come from behind horse, his kick at the end is just simply diamond dynamite. But taking that hurdle or that extra step on a facing older horses is so hard. And I know in Europe you guys do it earlier, and it seems to be the handle a little bit easier. Maybe it's just the way that they run, but out here that step from three year old to older horses. And maybe just because it's at the end of the year. I'm not sure what it is, but that step seems to be a very big one. I wonder if the, the nature of dirt racing as well. The, the, I, maybe yeah, that. Yeah. You have to be so quick and so fit to, to hold on, you know. And looking at Flightline, you know, he's by Tappet. He's not an Indian Charlie Maribel. I mean, it's not like it's a definite that he gets it. It's not like he's route built on top of, like, you know, non-stoppable route. I mean, his dam was uh, a turf horse, and she was kind of like mile and 16th at best. She ran okay in some further races, but really she she liked to keep it a little bit shorter. Um, and then her sire, Indian Charlie, was, again, a, a horse that stretched out a little bit, but he was predominantly best at sprinting, and his offspring have really been best going a little bit shorter. Um, so, I don't know, I just... Everyone just thinks it's like a lock, and I just I keep thinking to myself, Tom, this is not a lock for him. Like, if he wins, great, we will be blown away and impressed and everything. But I don't think that this is a hey, don't even bother looking at the race situation. Thanks very much to Michelle Yu there. Back at the UK now, I'm pleased to be joined by Great British Racing's Gabby Whitfield, who's the head of welfare communications, and this is all with the, the fact that. National Racehorse Week is back again this year. Hugely successful last year, Gabby, but this year with some key differences and, and additions. What are they? Yeah, I can't believe we're almost there. 10th to the 18th of September, National Racehorse Week. Um, yeah, there are differences uh, this year, uh, Tom, taking all the lessons we learned last year, which was a, a fantastic success in year one, and building on those to really make... National Racehorse Week, an incredible platform. And, it, you know, we'll build on it this year and we will continue to do that as we go forward as well. But this year, what we've done, um, we are over 180 racing venues now confirmed um, for the week, which is absolutely incredible. So last year we achieved just over 130. So already that's absolutely fantastic. But as part of that, what we've also done this year is included studs, and aftercare centres, retraining centres, rehoming centres for the public to come behind the scenes of because it's really, really important that we showcase the full life of the thoroughbreds in racing. So that's a, that's a key change for this year and one that um, we've got uh, eight aftercare retraining centres confirmed and 10 studs, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, the other change is National Racehorse Week has been created to connect people through to racing to bring people who don't really have a general interest in racing maybe have never been racing before behind the scenes of our of our sport so as part of that what we're doing is working very much into the community so we've got over 34 community events happening this year i think we we managed about six last year and working together with people like Racing to School and Racing Together, what we've got now is 14 school visits. We've got six charity visits with amazing organisations like the Rio Ferdinand Foundation and Box for Kids and people like that. 
we've got five care home visits um, happening where trainers and our aftercare centres are taking horses, both current racehorses and retired ones, out into the community, into care homes. And we've got um, a number of urban equestrian centres getting their very first experience of racing, coming from places in the centre of Birmingham, for instance, out to yards to be able to um, come behind the scenes uh, of racing. So that's a big change this year as we really up our focus to get these sort of more urban based, more community group based uh, people to come and experience racing uh, and come behind the scenes. Not every single trainer wants to or can open up um, en masse to the general public. So what a number have done is they've come on board with National Racehorse Week and they're doing private events for want of a better expression. So that's connecting to um, a school and having a school group um, visit or allowing um, a charity um, to be able to bring uh, a group of young people um, along to their yards. And that, that's been absolutely Fantastic. And, and we'd encourage anyone as we go forward to be able to think of National Racehorse Week in that way. But, you know, we also have those those locations that have really gone for it. I mean, Rebecca Menzies, almost um, 600 places she's got filled for for people to come along. We have Charlie and Mark Johnston who are doing 10 events during National Racehorse Week. And then we have um, the wonderful Joe Foster, who is taking Sigurd out every single afternoon in West Yorkshire into the community and taking Siggy there to schools and to care homes. So we have a whole scale of things going on from a very simple, small opening of 30 to 40 people right the way up to, to the huge numbers of, of some of the yards. And we're just incredibly grateful for, you know, how much this community has embraced National Racehorse Week this year. That I mean, that is fabulous. And, and I can see... Um why that will benefit communities so much i know the you know the 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 power of the horse particularly for people who who aren't used to being around horses why does it benefit racing as well why is this week and and everything you're doing so important for british horse racing well i think not just racing in any industry we can become very much um in a bubble the racing bubble is used a lot i hear it a lot in conversations when when you're dealing and surrounded by people who uh, enjoy their racing, know about racing, are fans of racing, so be that on a race course through to syndicates and owner groups through to the, the yard staff uh, across our sport, um, it's sometimes difficult to look outside of that and to understand, well, what is the general opinion out there about racing, about what we do? It's a very hot topic at the moment, um, the uses of horses in sport um and the more we as as an industry can come together and open our doors and let people behind the scenes of the sport to be able to show with pride and transparency what racing is all about the more we can help engender that sort of positive basic awareness outside of the racing community about what we do and the levels of care that we have in our sport and how the horses are at the heart of everything um, that we do. I mean, we, we did some research because we just wanted to put some figures behind 
how people in urban areas and we have to remember 80 percent of people in britain live in urban areas so how much contact people in urban areas and urban communities have had with the horse and and out of the 12 to 40 year olds who live in urban communities 27 percent of those have never seen a horse in real life and what was more shocking is when you looked at the 18 to 24 year olds that went up to 50 percent so when you think about the role that the horse plays in society and how people relate to that and how um when uh when challenging situations happen when when misinformation is spread about what happens in racing um when those people have never even had contact with horses they don't know anything about the sport it's very easy for them to be able to not have an informed opinion to be able to um to be able to, to ignore that or to know the realities of what of what's going on so during that that one week of a year, we have the ability to be able to to be able to get out into those communities, to invite people who've never had contact with horses to come behind the scenes, to get that very basic visceral moment of when you touch a horse for the first time, which is incredibly powerful and incredibly special. And and just on the how this works, I know this is a free event, Gabby. Um, yes. But it but it, I mean it's not free to run, is it? How how does how does the funding work? Yeah, funding is a really important part of this. And we've got some really, really good supporters. The Racing Foundation um, is our our biggest um, supporter in this. Obviously, Great British Racing, who I'm connected to, we run it. Um, So all of the staffing and and, uh, the the planning and uh, the execution of it is run by Great British Racing. But Racing Foundation and the Levy Board are our primary um, funders for this. And we also have four brilliant um, sporting partners have come on board this year, which we're incredibly grateful to. So that's the Jockey Club, ARC, Godolphin. And we have our first international partner with Japan Racing Association. So that's absolutely great. And then in addition to that, we just have so many different parts of this industry that are working together um, to support National Racehorse Week. Um, there, there are too many to mention, but... What's really fabulous with this is it, it feels like an industry united. There is nothing negative about National Racehorse Week. It can only do good. Lee, National Racehorse Week. What, what's your, your take on this week? 10th to the 18th of September, uh, bigger this year. It, it feels as though um, more, more thought has gone into to this year and, and what it can do for the industry. It can only be a good thing. Um, I think anything that connects not just horse racing, but the race horse to society at large has to be positive. When we have had discussions about uh, equine welfare in the past, about the use of the whip in the past, we've often made the point that um, society's links to the horse are so much less than they used to be in the past, particularly uh, in this country, perhaps less so in Ireland, but particularly in this country, people don't have day in, day day out connections with horses in the way that they used to do. And anything that I think brings people closer to racehorses has to be a good thing in uh, the wider understanding of how horse racing takes place, why it takes place, and why it is right that it takes place. And that, that the people, by and large, there are clearly always going to be some wrongdoers, but by and large, that people who work with racehorses and who work, work in horse racing primarily do so because they love horses. And I think anything that can 
emphasise that point and uh, underlines that the wider good of horse racing has to be a good thing. And I think it's great as well that so much is concentrated into one week that we have so many uh, yards opening in one week and not just yards as well. I think it really brings a focus onto it. And the more we can encourage the wider non-racing media uh, to do pieces based, based around this, the better. Lee, some news from Newbury and from Labrooks and, and Coral as well. The the Labrooks Trophy is now to be the Coral Gold Cup. Yes. So what for for pretty much most of our lifetimes, done well all our lifetimes until recently, was the Hennessy Gold Cup became uh, the Labrooks Trophy after Hennessy pulled out of the race sponsorship. Well, now what was the Labrooks Trophy is to become the Coral Gold Cup. Now Labrooks is a sister organisation of Coral. They're both owned by Entain, but it does signal that um, that business, that wider business, is really pushing Coral as its racing sponsorship brand. Uh, This is a very positive development for Newbury. It's a three-year extension, if you like, of the the current deal. It will involve 13 races being sponsored over two days, and the Coral Gold Cup will be run run for a quarter of a million pounds uh, in uh, November this year, which is excellent news. I think it comes at a time when we know the sponsorship market is extremely difficult, perhaps more so for horse racing than other sports, for for points that we've made when I was on the pod in relation to the Kazoo uh, Derby sponsorship. There are some blue chip sponsors that don't want to be involved in horse racing because of its links to betting and question marks that they have about animal welfare. So I think this is really welcome. It underlines the importance of bookmakers' sponsorship to horse racing in general as well. I would just make one one wider point Tom, is that I think obviously this when when bookmakers sponsor races, it's a great thing for horse racing, but equally it's a two-way relationship. And bookmakers will only sponsor things as would any sponsor if they think they're going to get something back from the the sponsorship. So it's good for the, the it's good for both sides of the equation. I do think increasingly that race courses and racing in general needs to have more of a conversation about something that I'm often contacted about by readers, which is bookmakers, pretty much most prominent bookmakers, closing punters' accounts or restricting winning punters. Often it's punters who haven't won a huge amount or maybe just been very good at getting prices. And I think increasingly, when these deals are being done and when racecourses are talking to bookmakers, there needs to be more of a conversation about this. Some of those restrictions and account closures are lamentable in the extreme. I've written the Racing Post in the past. We need to move much more towards an Australian system where bookmakers under license are not simply allowed to close winning accounts and they're not allowed to restrict punts in the way that ours do here and they have to go by a minimum bet rule. Um, and I think it's really disappointing that up to now, race courses and racing's leaders haven't been more prepared to have that conversation with bookmakers because when punters are not allowed to bet on racing, perfectly honest punters, racing is losing supporters and it's losing fans and that's a bad thing. So while deals like this are really good, really positive, I would just wish that say race courses and racing's leaders were prepared to be more vocal in their criticism of bookmakers who are not treating punters as they should be treated. 
That, that said, I can imagine that for race courses, if a bookmaker is putting up a quarter of a million pound for a feature race, that's not at the top of their agenda, if you see what I mean. To, to it's go to not, book- no, but I think the problem is, Tom, from all I've heard, it's nowhere on their agenda. Well, one of the uh, more lighthearted or intriguing stories of yesterday was the bees at Worcester. And I'm uh, pleased to say that Clark of the Course and now confirmed beekeeper Nessie Chanter joins me um, to explain what happened. Um, t- take me through it, Nessie. It was, uh, I take it this isn't something that you, you go through training for when becoming a Clark of the Course? No, but I'm thinking that maybe we should have to go through it because it has actually happened to me in the paddock at Stratford before. So maybe I'm some kind of bee... Um, it's Popular you. Woman or something. It's, it's me. It's definitely you. In fact, I remember it happening on Oaks or Derby Day at Epsom once as well. They appeared in the in the parade ring and they they weren't actually removed. I think they managed to be confined at that point. But um, the, the, these had so these were on the wing of a fence and effectively they had to be removed. Otherwise, horses couldn't jump the fence. Well, exactly, and the, the timing of it was typical because it was about sort of three minutes before the bell went uh, for the jockeys to mount, and it was pointed out by Race Tech that there was a swarm of bees on the inside of the wing, right at the front of the wing, right where they jumped the fence. Um, so it obviously wasn't safe for them to jump that fence. Uh, we were happy with them to bypass it because they were all on the inside of the wing. So we installed the bypass. Um, and then for the following race, it was a two-mile start, which would mean that they would have to jump the open ditch first. So for the following race, we then had to bypass both fences. So then we get to the bumper. But in the meantime, I've spoken to a bee expert, which luckily I had on tap, because he is one of the directors at Stratford Racecourse called George Lee. <laughs> So I phoned him up and said, George, I'm in a spot of bother. What, what can you tell me about bees? Because I need to learn quite quickly. Uh, and he said, actually, that they would be full of honey. So whilst they could possibly sting and probably would, they wouldn't be angry enough to swarm you, which was our major concern. Mm. So so that led you to, to think, well, I don't know whether you thought, but that led you to then move them yourself. Well, all I needed, all, all I had to do, I knew I had to take that wing out. And all the ground staff team uh, did a runner and said, we're not doing it. Uh, we don't have the right equipment and we're not suited and booted. So I thought, well, this isn't going to go very well. So I got a lift down the track in a small window between the chase fence and the bumper. And they watched me, the rotters, as I struggled to lift the wing on my own and walk very, very gently across to the centre of the course because George Lee had told me that the most important thing was not to allow the Queen to drop because wherever the Queen dropped, the others would swarm and they wouldn't move. So I I could just envisage in my head that the Queen was going to drop in the middle of the track and then all racing would be abandoned for the rest of the day. And, And this swarm was hanging perilously down from the side of the wing. It wasn't, you know, they were they were dropping the quite quite far down. So every time I wobbled the wing, they sort of swung perilously. And it was like, I don't know if you've ever played that child's game of operation. But oh, yeah. Like that. Was this caught on, on camera, the, the actual you moving the wing, or was, it, was that not, sadly? I haven't seen it. Happily not, oh, that's, I don't think. Um, you probably would have seen me sweating profusely. That is the greatest shame of all. Um, have, they, have they gone now? So, I, I'm trying to get the wing off the iron 
as gently as I could, walked as far away as I could into the centre of the course. And uh, they were still there late last night, but I've been told that they have rehomed this morning. Um, good. Well, their timing was impeccable, and um, well done to you. I think all the ground staff owe you a, owe you a drink, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, great stuff. I look forward to the to the next instalment in the the Nessie Chanter B trilogy because I'm sure there's there's going to be another one. Brilliant. Yes, I can't wait to to, to find out about what's going to happen next. Yeah, I'm <laughs> ne- definitely going to buy a beekeeper's suit. That's for sure. Nessie, great stuff. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye bye. I like bees, Lee. There there are some things that that crop up that you don't necessarily expect to crop up, and certainly fences being emitted to a because of a swarm of bees uh, is not one you expect but I, I have enormous sympathy Tom um, I am someone who I'm pleased to say at the age of 47 years um, has yet to be stung by either a bee or a one <laughs> that I was is recently, my god yeah, I know, well, what I a claim a, I was I've... doing a park run with my beloved who also had n- never been stung and was stung for the first time uh, on the ankle and that caused him significant pain. So I know the damage that these creatures can do. And thankfully, we avoided any sort of major issues at Worcester yesterday. Well, I know there are some um, some some bees and also there are some some wasps who, who are keen listeners to the Nick Luck Daily. Um, and I would invite them to just give you a taste of I think it's important to experience everything once, Lee. So... Mm. Um, not I, being stung though, I don't want to experience that, Tom. No, no, no. I think that's what that's that's. Uh, they're all invited to just 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 one of them. Just give them a maybe a wasp could do it because of course bees lose their life if they were to sting you. Yes, that that, that wouldn't be fair. So any wasps out there, just give Paley a visit. Would you like to send us a, away with a, a winner, please, Lee? Well, I'd, I'd much rather do that than be stung by a wasp, Tom. Um, I, I, I would. Yeah, it's a really good day at Swords today. Sadly, I can't get there this year. I went on this day last year. It's a super day uh, with quality two rolls in action across Novice Roses and, of course, in the Group 3 uh, Dick Pool Stakes for two-year-old fiddies. I'm actually going to go in the opening race on the card, though. A horse who I last year backed at 150 to 1 in the Royal Hunt Cup Bugle Major, a former Judmont horse um, who hasn't just yet clicked um, in Britain, but he's dropped down the ratings and he was claimed uh, in his most recent start by Archie Watson, um, who might well have uh, carried out a shrewd claim there. The horse carries 10 stone one in the 150 at Salisbury, an apprentice's handicap. Um, and I just wonder whether uh, off his new mark, uh, downing trip, and for a new yard, just because sometimes horses just benefit from a change of scenery, uh, he might well go close. So for me, Bugle Major in the 150 at Salisbury, and if you're around the Salisbury, do go to Smashing Racehorse, and today's a smashing day. Lee, thank you. Thanks to everyone at home for listening, and indeed for giving any feedback or reviews via your preferred podcast app. That is always very welcome. I will be back with you tomorrow. That was Thursday, the 1st of September. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.